Research, policy evaluation, and persistent monitoring are all pieces of ensuring sound policy creation and follow-through. These activities are particularly important when political leaders make big promises at election time. What are best practices for policy evaluation? How should civil society and think tanks approach the dual roles of policy analyst and activist? I am joined by Mr. Franklin Kujo, who is the founder, president, and chief executive officer of Imani Africa, Center for Policy and Education. I will ask Mr. Kujo about how think tanks can provide invaluable oversight over policy. This is Leaders Voices from the Leaders of Africa Project. Leaders' Voices is a series that focuses on pertinent topics in governance with in-depth thought leader interviews. My name is Peter Pinar, and I am your host. My guest, Mr. Franklin Kujo, is the founder, president, and chief executive officer of Imani Africa. Founded in 2004, Imani Africa has become one of Africa's most reputable think tanks. Mr. Kujo is actively involved in public advocacy work. He is also featured in international and local media for his commentary on development concerns. Mr. Kujo is joining me via Skype from Accra, Ghana. Welcome to the Leaders of Africa Project. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. So, so you are the founder, president, and the executive director for Imani Africa, the Center for Policy and Education. But I first want to talk about what brought you into development work and to focus on development concerns, particularly in Ghana. So how did you find your way at the outset to doing governance and development work in Ghana? Well, thank you very much. Um, for a very long time, this part of the work, uh, which involves policy analysis, had been left mainly for the older folks, older generation. In fact, the think tanks or society groups that existed in Ghana and somehow even on the continent were uh, led by people who were mainly academics but also quite old as well. And I had a sense that after interning with one of the leading think tanks in the country, which was the oldest think tank by the way, uh, and I saw how uh, business was conducted, I knew if we continued that path where we research, we do good work, but at the same time we only cater to a few segments of society, which were just the parliamentarians and probably ministers of state and a few media houses. There was no way we were going to cause the necessary shift uh, in terms of discussions and focus on our development that we wanted. So I thought there was a significant gap within the conversation. How do you undertake policy analysis? and then translate it into probably a thousand word article, get it published and get everybody assessing it and reading. First of all, politicians would, who do not have enough time can read it quickly and understand what you want to say. And then also the larger populace and the media especially, which because of lack of resources do not have the opportunity to do critical work, would just take it without having to do some real deductions before they discuss the issues. I mean, that approach for me, coming from a young person like me at the time, I think I was 26 at the time, changed the course of this country when it comes to activism, intellectual activism, that was predicated on a lot of useful research and intellectual rigor. So 
I got into this space partly because of the lack of opportunities or platforms to discuss these issues that interface with the people generally. Uh, but then secondly, also, I, I just got fed up reading a lot of economics that did not make sense for the continent. I mean, those are the times in the early 2000s where we, we were still relying on aid and we're still being forgiven our debts because of the stupidity of past leaders. And then somehow we were reveling in it because we were then asking the likes of Bono, of Geldof and the rock stars to come in here and, and actually raise money for us without understanding the context within Africa that we've shifted away from this aid model to a, a model that should require less on statism and uh, if you like a centralized centralization of politics and life but more so on uh, entrepreneurship and basically free markets because I those were the two major reasons why I got mm -hmm. into myself involved in this now, you've mentioned that you came into civil society and to activist work at a young age. And I'm wondering, you know, looking back at the founding of Imani Africa, for example, in 2004, how has the landscape shifted? Has there been a shift from the older generation that was involved in some of this work to a newer generation? So how has the contours and landscape of think tank and civil society work evolved over the period of time that you've been involved in some of this work? Oh, well, it has evolved. And also with the help of the technology, with internet, uh, multiple platforms where people can engage now. I mean, at the time we were taking over the country, and I say taking over the country advisedly, because there was no other established thing that's older, far more well-resourced and far more networked, where we're not taking on tackling the subjects that were the cause of our woes. They were still doing talks about democracy and for the winner not to take everything as in winner takes all politics. But there were big ticket transformational projects that were being supervised by politicians at the time that were not understood properly. So take, for instance, they were going for a three billion, the government at the point was going for a three billion Chinese dollar loan. And we were at the time the only think tank that brought global understanding to bear on what it is to deal with the Chinese and what it is to understand that if the Chinese promises a billion, and if you don't have a million, you won't probably get the money. No think tank at the time had the presence of mind and probably well-structured to understand that if the $3 billion loan did not work out or went ahead, worked out in a very negative manner, it was going to pile up to our debt. So Imani took a position and brought global presence to bear on our analysis and changed the course of that project Directly. In fact, four years down the line after the project was conceptualized, after the loan agreement was conceptualized, the money hadn't come. And it didn't come because the very words we used, which was the profitability and viability of a project that the Chinese would want, eventually became what became the household name. I mean, I'm just trying to tell you that there should have been significant shifts in the sense that now most of the things that have come, civil society groups that have come now, have now actually took the lead from us mm -hmm. and have become a bit more active and asking basic questions of value for money. Even though Amishi's statement was clear, it was mainly banishing the mundane from our body politic, which was, you know, do value for money audits and then publicize the results as widely as possible. For subjects and projects that no other thing than society dared venture to talk about. Mm -hmm. So it shifted and with the aid of technology, a lot more people, and of course, a lot more people now take a cue and ask questions of their leaders. 
So at the outset of Imani Ghana's founding in 2004, what was the process that you went through to get Imani Africa into being? And how were you able to really build the reputation of Imani Africa into one of the most recognized and widely reputable think tanks in all of Africa? Well, that's a brilliant question. To say that we did not, we did not get help, it's an understatement. We actually got more support, network support, not in terms of money, but more so in terms of training and networking. Mm -hmm. I mean, in 2004, thereabouts, I was, as a leader, founder of the organization, was already interning with other think tanks in the UK, for instance, and I paid glowing tribute to the International Policy Network, which is a think tank that I believe significantly formed the basis and helped us map launch heavily into the media landscape across the world and indeed across uh, Africa, which was my home. So I've done some internships, I've done some uh, professional courses, even in Michigan. I came all the way to a think tank in Michigan. I actually took some training, almost two weeks there, on how to manage think tanks and how to place the editorials in the newspaper. It was a combination of a number of trainings, a number of internships, a number of networks, and a number of meeting people who were already leading in this limelight in terms of uh, doing reasonable policy analysis. So yes, that theft the death of Imani. So for instance, by 2005, I was already doing OPEX at the Wall Street Journal and the Daily Telegraph in London. That's one year after the founding of Imani, all because I was properly trained in uh, doing policy analysis and engaging in the media back in the UK at the time. So everything then fell in place because then one thing went left to the other. You got a publication and it was on a very important subject like Bob Geldof and co had a party in Trafalgar Square on a Friday uh, asking Africa's debt to be forgiven and more aid to be given to Africa. And Monday morning, a leading British newspaper has a banner headline that says, Rockstar Economists Cannot Save Africa by an African called Francis Kujo. And everybody begins to talk about it, referenced across the world by all the media. So that all these bits and pieces actually led into the consolidation of Imani that was known outside of Ghana even before we decided to bring it back home and make it solid for people to follow. So it seems like it's a combination of capacity and training and strategy that's needed, but it's also a piece of content, the research that you're delivering. How important is the content and the approach and the methods that one uses to do policy research to actually raising the profile of an organization that is trying to bring about policy change? Well, content is key. I mean, strategy is everything. Uh, execution is probably more important. And part of the execution also means content must be looked at. Content is key. And content must be contextualized, I think, mm -hmm. is the point I'm trying to make. So what were the raging debates at the time when Imani became more like an African global name? At the time, the, the discussions hovered around trade, taxes, pay things, as in for, for pharmaceutical products, that's healthcare, aid, and good governance. Mm -hmm. Now, but this was because at the time, these were the discussions the world was, was hooked onto. And for us, it centered everything on Africa and why Africa was the way it was because of these issues that were lagging. Mm -hmm. So we plugged ourselves into it 
and made sure that we were authentic voices that were talking about this issue. I'll give you an example. So, for instance, I appeared on the BBC TV discussion in 2005 with a Christian aid activist. Mm -hmm. And a Christian aid activist with reasons for forgiving debts in Africa and asking for more aid for Africa was that a child dies on the continent every three seconds out of poverty, disease, and hunger. But I lived on the continent and we've done the calculations, which was very validated by the Organization of African Unity at the time, mm -hmm. that $150 billion got stolen on the continent every year. So when this aid activist made mention of the need for more Africans to get more aid and all of that, then I cited a statistic in Rubata that every second on the continent, but at two, but around 2005, $4,600 was being stolen mm -hmm. by our African leaders through debt. So context matters strategy execution also is very useful but context is key now you've said in the past or commented in the past that uh, you know imani africa for example has an activist component or you've talked about uh, activist think tanks and i'm wondering what this means in the political and economic context particularly in ghana how does imani africa contribute to that debate how do they fulfill that role of being both a research institute and policy center, and also that activist part of the process? That's a beautiful question, by the way. See, activism is not just putting feet on street. It's also mobilizing forces, marshalling forces within the media space to focus on an issue that you believe strongly that needs some attention. Mm -hmm. So in that light, activism means, first of all, reducing a very structured technical report into understandable language, which obviously understandable language which the media can use without much interpretation. Mm -hmm. And then by doing so, everybody gets to connect immediately and say, oh, come on, how can they be spending a hundred thousand bedroom house when, and, and they want to build three bedroom house to cost a hundred thousand dollars when the natural fact Local business people, construction workers are building similar and probably better for maybe $30,000. Mm -hmm. So, you know, what you've done is to reduce a whole project whose budget is about $10 billion from the South Koreans, strip it off all the technical jargons, and say, so what's the meat of the issue? Ghanaians, this is what we are being told to. We are going, our money is going to be used for because you're going to raise a loan from the South Koreans to build some 200,000 units of houses. Mm -hmm. Doesn't make sense. Break this into component and say, even if you did an analysis of how much it costs, this is how, what it should be the cost. Mm -hmm. When you do that kind of thing, you are able to mobilize and marshal forces within the media landscape who would take these very well explained issues? Because it has to be, it's, it's a black and white matter. There are no gray areas when you're doing think tank work, even in any part of the world, no matter how sophisticated the issue. If the purpose of a think tank is not able to explain issue to the laity mm -hmm. of the populace in a way that's understood and convincing, you have no business being the think tank industry. Mm -hmm. So for us, we understood that as a very vital aspect of marshalling forces media and individuals in order to understand a critical issue. That is for us the definition of intellectual activism. 
Now, many have said in the past when it comes to think tanks, particularly those that have an activist side, as you mentioned, intellectual activism, you know, civil society organizations think tank as being somehow the voices of the opposition. And I'm sure you've heard this talked about before and have been asked about it in the past. But I'm wondering on a related matter, how much should think tanks and those in civil society activism interact with political stakeholders, cooperate or be more confrontational with political stakeholders? What do you think is the balance there? Is there a balance? How should they engage with some of these political stakeholders? Well, that's another beautiful question again, because in this work, especially on this continent, and I suspect even in your own country, there are motive questioning all the time. I mean, depending on if it is Heritage Foundation or the Cato Institute that brings up a report, people tend to look at where are they based, who is funding them, without necessarily looking at the content of what is being proposed. Mm-hmm. On the continent in Africa, it's, it's even worse because, again, people would ask, who are their paymasters? Where did they come from? What are their ethnic origins? These people tend to do all these kinds of silly permutations, and somehow they try to pigeonhole you. What we have found out was totally, was basically dovetails into the narrative you just proposed. We've been tagged several times. We've been asked, told that depending on which party is in power, we are embedded in the opposition. And I keep telling some of the people in power that, look, instead of taking our criticisms and running ahead with it, uh, you do yourself a disservice if you thought that we were agents of the political club. Mm-hmm. Not far from that. But the way we have dealt with that is, again, to engage properly for them to understand that we are not enemies. I'll give you an example. Mm-hmm. So the previous government that ruled Ghana from 2012 to 2016 was one government that were basically enemies, enemies in quotes. They never respected intellectual rigor or anything that was brought to bear on the way governance was conducted. And then called them all kinds of names, KGB sponsored, CIA uh, opposition sponsors and all of that. Then we took it in our stride and said, look, let's show these guys that what we do really matters and they need to listen. Mm-hmm. So in 2015, I told my team that, look, we need to develop a mechanism that can assess governments every year. The mechanism that embodies accountability, it will be useful on the accountability calendar that nobody can ignore it. Because mm-hmm. already there are other things that with in bits and pieces, you know, budget tracking, health assessment, economy. But we said, what could we do? Then the idea came to mind that let us actually track their manifesto promises. Mm-hmm. And guess what? We've been doing this in 2008. We've been writing about it. The people don't book, that people don't listen. In 2015, I told my team, listen, whether we have the funding or not, let's raise the tempo a bit. Let's show these guys that, look, we care about our country more than they do. So we conducted for the first time, but did a framework for assessing political manifestos mm-hmm. and went to the government and told the government that, listen, you care about your legacy. We have developed a system and a tool to assess the performance of your government based on the manifestos. Mm-hmm. Immediately we did that, and of course they understood the framework, it was scientifically proven and all of that. We realized a huge change in their attitude. In fact, when we presented the first results to them, a mid-term progress of their work, what the co- communication they went to town with was that we are very grateful for Imani's work. 
If I will marry a man, it's, it's difficult to please. But even then, we know our progress report is 47%. We were expecting 40%. But money is difficult to please. But we'll do our best to narrow the gap and ensure that we do well before the next elections. You know what they did? One month after the reports we published, and the whole country, the whole media got talking about it, that government decided to ask their candidates, who was president at the time, to conduct their own report of the progress they've made in the country. Mm. And the president went around the country. They mentioned that it was Imani's work was an eye-opener to them that they needed to tell their own story. That followed through, and then we decided to extend it to the last elections, which also became a household name. I'll send you a link about that story. And all of a sudden, the politicians decided that these guys who were vowed enemies realized that, look, these guys actually mean well. First of all, they knew they were going to be vulnerable because the mm -hmm. public actually loved the work we do. And they, the next thing they knew was that, well, maybe it's better to actually understand these people from where they are coming from. And that, so that's the way we dealt with it. You go on, do proper research, involve them in some of their questions, filling forms, surveys, for them to understand that this is not a hatchet job you are doing, right? Mm -hmm. So it sounds like research that you've done is also spurring others to do similar monitoring and evaluation and, and research for their own purposes. And so it seems like you're modeling some of the practices that can be used, but also being critical yourself as well. And I'm wondering, one of the things that people will say is that Mani Africa is very critical of Ghana. And I, I know you hear this time and time again. And one of the things that, that I think about is the relationship between being critical as well as those that are on the other end of the spectrum, those that are captured by state interests, by political interests. And I'm wondering, in the context of Ghana, are there civil society organizations or groups or segments of it that you feel that are being less critical than they should be or somehow on the furthest end of the spectrum, somehow captured by political interests themselves? At the end of the day, nobody wants to ride on the fact that the work they do is only meant to criticize. Of course, if there wasn't a problem, people wouldn't criticize. And the first rule of criticism is that is to say that what we are doing already is not engendering the necessary support. So for me, understanding criticism in that light helps a lot. There are politically aligned think tanks, for instance, there's the Danko Institute, which is a, it is obviously a political think tank, by the way. Mm -hmm. And so to that extent, I, I wouldn't say that civil society groups are, have been captured by the state. What I can actually say, though, is that until we came onto the scene, almost all of them were like behaving like moribund institutions, because again, they weren't able to confront, even though they had the power to do so, Mm -hmm. to confront authority with recent debates and marshal the kinds of forces that I was talking about. So it's more or less some tempered, you know, skepticism, or sorry, tempered fear, rather than the fact that it was because the world got too cozy mm -hmm. in the government. I don't think that is it. Now, turning back to some of your research and monitoring that you do of policy, how easy or hard do you find getting some of the information that you need to ground the research in terms of getting information about government projects and such. How difficult or easy is that process? And perhaps how has that process changed over time, become easier or more difficult since the period of time you've been working and began Imani Africa? 
Oh, well, it's been terribly difficult. You see, there was a time when we decided that the best way to get information that we were not given is to go on the public with the one limited information we have, and then that way it forced the very institution that we needed information for, but we're feed dragging, to actually come and say, oh, you know, Imani got it wrong. These are the facts. And that's mm -hmm. the way we, we did it in the past. So we ambushed them with the little information we had because they were not willing to do that. And then we got the right information and got the necessary discussion going for it. But even now, it's still difficult. Look, I've been involved with my team. I personally joined the team to go and do service. We're trying to gauge the extent to which our local content provisions or laws in the country actually match reality on the ground. And mm -hmm. we needed to set up interviews with people who are familiar with the matter. And for a very long time, they were not trying to give the meetings, even though their ministers, their supervisors and masters have okayed the meetings. Now, I had to use all kinds of persuasion in order to get the meetings going. And even then, after getting the meetings, and they tell you that they give you follow-up data, it takes, it takes a whole lot of time before the data comes. Mm -hmm. Just to say that, the way we deal with data in this part of our world is as if data is fetish. Mm -hmm. And then people hold on to it as if they are trophies. In mm -hmm. actual fact, it's not the case. So we still face challenges, but we've managed to do our work. Look, we currently are asking ourselves whether there's a need to create more districts in the country. Because more the districts have been created, diced up the country into poverty groupings, I call them. Mm -hmm. But to validate that this is what has happened, we needed to put boots on the ground, send people to go and collect data. We validate the data and make sure we feed it into analysis. Mm -hmm. So we just don't do actual policy analysis. We do a whole lot of activism based on well-researched, well-surveyed, how should I say, uh, papers as well. Now, before I turn to some of the development concerns in Ghana, I want to ask you about the relationship or what you think the relationship is between democratic practice and democratic institutions and development outcomes. And I'm wondering how important to you are democratic practices to underpinning development? Or can we, you know, in an alternative model, focus on development issues and then bring along democratic practice perhaps in the future? How do those two pieces fit together in your mind? For me, I think that democracy in itself is, is a useful concept and the contents of democracy also ought to be properly well preserved and delivered. The question as to whether the, the work we do somehow dovetails into the processes of democracy and whether there are gains to be made of in itself is another question, is another thing to deal with. I mean, Ghana has been blessed to have institutions like us and the ones that were there before us. And they've all emphasized on democracy and good governance that I suspect we are even overwhelmed by it, by, mm -hmm. the, by the amount of noise we make. So I have a personal construction that Ghana has become a flagging democracy because we are overflogged with a lot of the democracy and the tenets of democracy. What we haven't done effectively is to translate these tenets and theories into proper, proper actionable items. So, yes, we are a democracy, we vote and do all, that's all we do. Mm -hmm. But in terms of the proper impact it's having on, our, on, on our, the bottom line of a country, as in how significantly it's drawing in foreign direct investment, 
how it is mobilizing resources, both internal and external, to prosecute the governor's agenda, how we respect some of the institutions we've created for ourselves that deal with monitoring and evaluation of our petrol dollars, mm -hmm. for instance, and how we publicly manage finances are all still lingering questions that the democracy hasn't been able to answer because somehow the politician wants to have his way all the time. So in that nexus of democracy, think tank work and the political outcomes, I certainly think that it's a relationship that is still building and is still ongoing. But in actual fact, until we get our activist antennae properly skewed and did a lot more of auditing for the country, but the dividends democracy for tents would be a mirage, really. Mm -hmm. Now, do you think that Ghanaians, with this more open and democratic dispensation that Ghana has, do you think Ghanaians have been holding their leaders to account? You've talked about how Imani Africa is trying to shed light and monitor what the promises are of the politicians and then whether those promises have been followed through. And I think that's a major theme in your work and you've mentioned that in this interview. Do you think Ghanaians are now beginning to care about whether their promises of their governments are kept? And do you see that change, say, for example, from 2004 to present? More Ghanaians have become quite cynical and also aided by technology. They become more cynical. Elections have always been based on who was more corrupt than the other. Until we came onto the limelight and decided to focus the discussions away from those high-sounding terminologies to the actuals. Mm -hmm. If a politician says, I'll build you a bridge, and the bridge, there's no, there's no river, there's no gully for the bridge to be built, you probably need to ask questions. To the extent that these conversations about the whether Ghanaians have managed to extract some amount of accountability from their leaders, it is still an ongoing process. And they really, they really do mm -hmm. because of institutions like us now. They really do. And uh, the last elections, as I said, the manifesto project we did actually virtually from the basis for critiquing and asking politicians, what have you done? In fact, even as you speak right now, people refer to it and say, oh, you see, we are doing this. This is why Imani said we shouldn't do this during the election. We never understood it. We didn't understand. Now we are seeing the impact. Mm -hmm. To that extent, people are still holding on. I'll give you an example. We said that, look, the ruling government promises at the time, most of them were not quantifiable because it would be difficult to attain if there was no proper thought-through conceptualization uh, there. Mm -hmm. The first thing the government did when they came into office is to appoint 110 ministers probably 30 more in excess of what we had known for the country. And the government said they needed more men to be able to prosecute their agenda because their promises were many. And people started saying that, ah, but this is why Mani kept saying that plan before you execute and plan before you ask for many, many more hands to do a job that shouldn't be done by more than 50 people, you know. To that extent, people are beginning to question. And people, to us, we are grateful that these kinds of accountability mechanisms are useful for the country. Now, my last question, in your view, and broadly speaking, what are some of the key development challenges that Ghana faces and that Africa faces overall if we look broadly at the continent? You know, Peter, most of the challenges you face on the continent are self-inflicted. Mm -hmm. Uh, prioritizing them means that we do the commonsensical things first. 
So, for instance, in this country now, we are talking, our leaders, president, the vice president, the finance minister have been talking about Ghana beyond aid. It's a mantra that has come now. We don't want to do aid again and all of that. But you look closely at the budget and aid has almost dwindled. It's less than 10% of receipts into the budget, which means that domestic resources have been mobilized enough to be able to make do for the shortfall, right? Mm-hmm. Now, the next question you ask yourself is, what does Ghana Beyond Aid mean? Does it mean, and this is what we understand. I was telling the mission heads on the USAID recently, and the, we talked to the French business people and the diplomats yesterday. And I had to tell them that, look, listen, all this talk, big talk about Africa beyond it, Ghana beyond it, the opportunities exist already. We shouldn't believe that we need to be giving money in order to fix these challenges. Mm-hmm. What are the opportunities? We are going to explore more oil, so that means more oil resources. What think tanks like S would be doing is to say, okay, more oil money will be coming to fix your Ghana beyond it. Mm-hmm. But... Don't spread the oil resources so thin across several projects that you will not see the value. Invest critically in the product sector that can multiply the effect on the economy. So means testing and proper targeting of resources are things that we need to do. How difficult is this to be done? And how is this a challenge? It's not a challenge. It's only a challenge when people who probably believe that they need to share their money and share it in such a way that everybody can get a bit of it, but not in actuality in actual fact, directed the money to create multiple effects. There's no challenge. The next opportunity is revenue mobilization. We know that our ports leak badly. Mm-hmm. There's an invoicing. There's uh, all kinds of shenanigans at the port. The vice president who I met about the, uh, last month, I met him, I think, in January. Yes. We discussed the country's issues and all of that. And he brought an idea on how to make the port system work properly a system called paperless system. Mm-hmm. Then we found out to our amazement that while he had introduced the system, the custom officials are not respecting the rules. And even though there's been an increase in revenue by 35%, we should actually have generated 80% more revenue. Mm-hmm. Now, how is, this, how is this a challenge? It's a challenge to the extent that there are dubious people sitting at the port who do not want this to work. And it's a challenge because the vice president told him and if we didn't crack the whip, this thing will continue. It's not a challenge. I'm saying that the challenges we face are insurmountable, and the solutions are right in here. Mm-hmm. Or you want to say, okay, you don't want to receive aid again. What you want to do is to then rely on foreign direct investment. What do you do next? Don't you then create the opportunity and the, this mechanism to attract more foreign direct investment? But you have a PPP bill, public-private partnership bill, lying in parliament for the past two and a half years. It's not been passed into law. And you think that by some magic, just because you are saying you are going to be on it, people will bring you money when they haven't seen a framework that they want to work with. Mm-hmm. It doesn't happen that way. Mm-hmm. So for me, I turn back the question and ask myself, what are we doing? Oh, we are slipping on the doing business report of the World Bank from 108 in 2016 to 112 in 2017. In 2018, we are around 20th. Rwanda is 41st. Rwanda is the third cleanest country in the continent or probably the world. We are the seventh dirtiest country in the world. How do you deal with these issues? You require leadership. It's not a challenge. These are things that ought to be done properly. And that's a commonsensical approach Imani has always adopted. Mr. Kujo, 
Thank you for speaking to the Leaders of Africa Project. All the best with your work at Imani Africa. We hope that you will join us again in the future. It's been a pleasure, my brother. Thank you. Mr. Cujo is the founder, president, and chief executive officer of Imani Africa. Do you have thoughts on development concerns and the role of think tanks in public advocacy? We want to hear from you. Share your questions and comments at yourvoice@leadersofafrica.org. And that's it for me, Peter Pinar, on this episode of Leaders' Voices from the Leaders of Africa Project. Thank you for joining me. Until next time. Oh, yeah.